Welcome to Planet Mundus. I am Nihel Sharif. Just a heads up, this short was produced in May. It was part of my master's thesis. Now that I graduated, I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. So please be generous with your comments and feedback on Facebook, Twitter, email, or our website, planetmundus.com. Og lige nu her på DR1 sidder Tine Goethe klar til at præsentere TV-avisen. Namaskar, med Udsudic og Adriot. Kilmitén Ubas. Her er det første deutsche fernsehen med der tageshow. Our objective is to try to make people happier with their money, which sounds like a really weird objective for a bank. One of the UK's newest banks is hoping to make its clients love it, a goal that remains a challenge almost a decade after the financial crisis of the 21st century. One of Tandem's co-founders, Ricky Knox, explains their catch line. We will build awesome products that analyze uh, your financial life and figure out actually how we can make you richer. Sounds good so far. Who would not love this? But the editor of the Banker magazine, Brian Kaplan, says that banks should start with regaining people's trust. I don't think ever people will feel in love with their bank. But I think we have to get back to a, a time when they're trusted and they're reliable and they're not seen as quasi-nefarious. In other words, in recent years, banks have been seen as criminals. So, due to public pressure, regulators and authorities began to tighten the grip on banks after 2007. And consequently, the media put banking into the spotlight. Yet, recent decisions by the government and regulatory bodies in Britain brought back questions on whether the atmosphere is favoring the banks again. This is Nihal Sharif, and I wanted to see how this atmosphere of bank bashing changed in the United Kingdom. How does it affect the new banks making their way into the British market? How does the relationship between banks and regulators look like? And where is the media amid all of this? Welcome to Lloyd's Welcome Bank. Welcome to HSBC. Thank you for taking the time to call Metro Bank. Standard Chartered Bank. Welcome to Barclays. Thank you for calling out Hello. North Bank. Welcome to NatWest. The banking sector has been changing in the UK since it was saved from collapse by billions of pounds of taxpayers' money. Tougher restrictions were introduced. But at the same time, the government wanted to have more competition. In 2010, Metro Bank got its license to operate in the UK. It says it's the first non-specialized, full-service bank to get the green light from British regulators in around 100 years. Such changes opened the door for new banks like Tandem, which got its license last November. It's expected to begin operations later this year. Michael Noonan is the enterprise risk manager at Tandem. I guess after 2008, um, the government and the regulator saw the need to disaggregate the banking industry, that essentially the whole thing about being too big to fail is not tenable in the long term. So I think there was an appetite on the part of the government and the regulator to encourage more competition in the sector. Tandem is a digital bank, meaning it has no fancy offices scattered around the country. It's a far cry from the traditional brick-and-mortar banks that for a long time symbolized the stability of the banking sector. Occupying only a small office in London, some members of Tandem's team, like Noonan, take their meetings to a nearby cafe at King's Cross. How did the application process change? What they've done now is they've made that application process a lot easier to navigate. 
the requirements are still just as strict, but you have milestones that you meet, you get feedback as you go, make it a much more compelling proposition from an investor point of view. At the start of the process, teams from the UK's two main regulatory bodies, the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulation Authority, meet with founders of the new bank. They ask about their business plan, their financial model, and if they have the proper liquidity. If all goes well, the bank gets green light to present an official application. And this is the phase where the regulator are really going through uh, every document with a fine-tooth comb. At the end of that phase, you are hopefully granted license with restriction, which is the phase that we're in now. The process has been made easier for new banks to open. But actually, regulations in general have tightened since 2008. Regulations happen on two levels. There are rules introduced by international groups such as the Basel III framework. It requires banks to hold more capital against their assets. Other rules were made on a domestic level, for example the bank levy tax. It was introduced in 2010 with the aim of discouraging banks from high-risk actions. Some people think regulations have not been tight enough on the banks. Ranjit Lal is a researcher at Harvard. He blames this on the close relationship between regulators and bankers. The close relationships, both social and professional, between the bankers and the regulators have led to, in my opinion, excessively weak, lenient regulation on banks, which you know, ultimately has a major social cost and leads to enormous financial crises like the ones we've seen. Lal previously worked at the Bank of England's Financial Stability Division as a regulator and was involved in international initiatives like Basel III. And also there's the issue of the revolving door between banks and regulatory agencies. Many of the senior regulators who worked on Basel III, for example, had just come from major international banks. And, you know, in fact, afterwards they left and rejoined those banks or other regulators also left and joined banks. So there's real risk there that the regulators will have an excessively favorable view of banks and their ability to manage these risks. He says such closeness dominates the relationship between major banks and regulators on both international and domestic levels. And there appears to have been little change on that front since the crisis. Other financial actors, such as watchdogs or public interest groups, do not enjoy this closeness with regulating bodies. But the problem goes beyond friendship and personal contacts. Banks have more expertise. The major banks often have a big advantage in assisting regulators because they're, often they're the only ones who really know that they have the technical knowledge to be able to help to develop these rules. That's another reason why the major international banks tend to have disproportionate influence over rules in the end and you know, are basically allowed to shape rules in a way that favor themselves, allow them to maximize their profits. That must not be true. Are banks actually able to write their own rules to help them make money? What about the other players in the industry? The participation of NGOs, trade unions, research institutes and other groups that do not have a commercial interest is uh, less than 10% and living less than you find in other economic areas. This is Dr. Stefano Pagliari, a lecturer at the International Politics Department at City University. In a recent study, he found out that regulations are often controlled by a narrow group of institutions, mainly the banks and bank lobby groups, such as the British Bank Association, which declined to comment. The most important constraint that we find in our analysis is the technical complexity of the issue. 
So the more complex a certain rule is, the more it will be difficult for groups that do not have the type of expertise to actually acquire the knowledge required to make an impact. Finance Watch is a Brussels-based financial public interest group set up in 2011. Their spokesman in London, Greg Ford, does not see their problem in technical complexity. It's more about the lack of resources. The issue is mainly one of resources. If you compare the lobby voice of the financial industry with that of civil society, it's a huge difference. What about journalists? Are they trying to get the public more involved? Dr. Pagliari explains. The problem is that the media only rarely gets involved in financial regulation besides the technical financial press, which is read mostly by insiders. And that's in part to do with the complexity of the issue, which means it's difficult for the media to sell stories about uh, banking capital requirements or liquidity ratios to a journalist audience. So most of the times the media will actually lack the incentive to devote significant coverage to this type of issues. After 2008, some analysts blame the media for not properly informing and preparing the public for the failures in the financial system. But media coverage on banking has changed. One thing that comes out from the study is that actually coverage became more negative, of course, and stayed more negative and is still more negative than it was before. This is Diego Beranzo. He works with Prime Research, which analyzed over 120,000 articles covering banks from the UK and the rest of Europe. The results were later published by the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. They showed that you are now twice as likely to read news about banks on the front page or other prominent parts of a newspaper than you were before the crisis. Suddenly, not only there was more coverage, but coverage was much more prominent. So we are not talking about page 20 of the newspaper. Those same journalists that up to a certain point in 2007 were used to have a certain amount of space tucked away somewhere in the, in the economic section of the paper. Suddenly, they were asked to write more and write uh, potentially on first pages and same online. But what did the more prominent coverage actually cover? Which player has a louder voice? It turns out that most stories in the UK come from banks themselves, with 53% of coverage between 2007 and 2013. Meanwhile, a category of politicians and authorities, which includes regulators, triggered only 8% of the coverage. One publication tried to get people more interested in finance. In 2011, The Guardian started the banking blog. They approached Joris Lundik, a non-financial Dutch journalist, to explore new ways to make such a complex issue easier for outsiders. We bring in somebody who doesn't know anything about finance, and we unleash that outsider onto the city and ask him to ask insiders to explain what finance is all about, who are these people, what makes them tick, how can they live with themselves, etc. And who was your main audience? I wasn't sure. And I still don't know, because uh, we don't really know who visits the website or uh, who are these people. But it seems that there was an interesting mix of insiders and then outsiders interested in finance. And then when there was a controversial piece or controversial interview, there would be loads more outsiders. They seemed mostly interested in the sort of Wolf of Wall Street cliches about finance. He also wrote a book about his experience and has been discussing the need for tougher laws. His goal is also to make bankers understand that their involvement should be unbiased, for the greater good. I want banks to be safe again because they nearly crashed the world economy and they can do this again. 
And so the best way to make it safe again is to make sure that people behave. And so the best way to do that is to make sure it's in their own interest to behave. And for that, I think we need very different laws and very different incentives. There seems to be division in London on whether the current rules are loosening. Are regulators losing interest? Is the government leaning towards banks again? What is happening in the city? This station is bank. Change here. In the middle of last year, the Treasury announced the bank levy would be reduced gradually from 0.21% to 0.1% by 2021. Another move was the ouster of Martin Wheatley, who was the chief of the FCA and was known for his huge fines on banks. And finally, at a press conference last December, the governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, sent an assuring message to the banks. So all should be clear, there's no new wave of capital regulation coming. There is no Basel IV. So what does all of this mean? Hugh Jones reports mainly on regulations at Reuters. So the mood has changed. Policymakers think they've done enough, basically. And now they've moved on to jobs, to growth, try and get the economy going again. Having said that, there's been no sign of any substantial rollback in regulation. The, the tone may have shifted, but a lot of the basic rules brought in since the crisis are still there and they still bite. There is also the question of Britain's future in the EU, on which the public will decide in a referendum on the 23rd of June. Would a Brexit change the face of the world's leading financial centre? Jones doesn't think so, because simply... Britain is the biggest financial services exporter in the EU. It couldn't replace that overnight. It would take years, decades maybe and continue to do business in Europe, we would have to have similar rules to them. So if we try to loosen our rules, then um, the EU will simply say, well, your banks are less safe than ours, so we can't allow them to do business on the continent. And the United States would certainly do the same thing. Earlier this year, the FCA had to deny that it has gone soft on banks after dropping its inquiry into banking culture. As a regulator, it is really important that we are independent, we are tough, but we are also listening to the people whom we are trying to regulate. In a meeting with the Parliament's Treasury Committee, FCA acting chief Tracy McDermott said it's all about engaging in talks. And I think it's really important that that is taken forward in an intelligent way, so there isn't a sort of slash-and-burn approach that says, let's just get rid of things for the sake of it. But there's a real debate and discussion about actually what's working and what's not working. So the close ties are not necessarily bad for the industry? Cyrus Ardellen is the non-executive chairman of Oak North Bank. It was established last year and specializes in lending to small and medium-sized companies. I think there's been a big change in relationship between banks and regulators. I think it's a much closer relationship. I think banks are much more conscious of the need not only to abide by the letter of the law, but also by the spirit of the law. So there's a lot more discussion going on what the intentions of regulators are and for banks to try and meet those. But where does that leave a small new bank like Tandem? How influential can they be when it comes to setting the agenda on the regulatory table? Tandem's Michael Noonan says. There's definitely a lot of scope for the incoming challenger banks to collaborate on matters that we feel strongly about that can benefit the market as a whole. And there is a strong community in terms of the challenger banks. It's in everyone's interest that we all succeed together to, to an extent. It's true that the big banks have a lot of 
weight behind them and a lot of influence, but they're getting a pretty hard time from the regulator as well. So banks see that they are getting the heat from the regulators. Academics argue that banks rule the whole process. And the media? Brian Kaplan of The Banker magazine has a different take on this. Before the crisis, the regulator's view was that the business model of the bank was a matter for the bank. And the regulator's role was simply just to make sure that you, know, you had a risk management system and you conformed to some basic criteria. Now we're in a completely different world. So the regulation on the banks is so tight and so comprehensive that in some ways you could say the regulators are running the banks now. Then your question is, will the regulators make a better job of running the banks than the bankers did? And we'll have to wait and see, because uh, it may not be the case that they do any better. This was Nihel Sharif looking at banks, regulators and media in the UK.